Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation, and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like Tech Leader's favourite off-the-shelf service, providing high-quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer. And I'm talking from little old Britain, the Big Smoke, London, one of the very few truly international cities of the world. And in this episode, we're going to talk about data, 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 or more precisely, a guru in that space. We're going to get clear on the aspects of engineering it, the people involved in it, i.e. the roles, and talk about a book he has written on how to hire the right people for it. Welcome, Roy. How are you, my friend? Hello. Good. Hanging in there, doing my best during these these uh, interesting times. Of interesting, ours. with quotes either side. Interesting times, as they say. Yeah. So, um, Roy, uh, what? tell us about yourself. What, what do you do? Well, I would describe myself as a, a data scientist, probably talk more about what that means and why that's a little bit uh, nebulous. Um, the, my, my background is actually in physics, but um, about starting in 2012 or so, I switched over to data science, uh, been working as a consultant and as a uh, full-time employee for mostly tech startups. And uh, at the moment, I'm, I've been doing a, some consulting and I'm also working on a book uh, right now about hiring data scientists and machine learning engineers. Cool. That's really cool. I, I have to respect anybody that tries to write a book because I've given it a go a few times myself and I seem to get probably to the forward <laughs> and then that's about, it's about as far as I get. So, um, so that's quite an interesting subject you got there about hiring the right data science. So what kind of triggered you to write that? Uh, well, honestly, I talk to a lot of companies about, about several topics related to data science and one that comes up a lot is, is how do we build our team? How do we find people? How do we uh, sort through, you know, who, who we should actually hire or, or maybe taking a step back? How do we figure out who we need and, and how we advertise this? And so, you know, at some point I just thought, wow, I keep having the same conversation over and over. Maybe I should write some of this down. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it was one of those things where I thought maybe I should write blog posts and then, I, and then um, actually was inspired by a, a friend of mine who had started using this uh, self-publishing platform that I'm on. It's called Lean Pub. And it sounded like it was pretty easy and straightforward. So I said, let's go for it. Um, and then also, uh, I was talking to some data scientists I knew who, and, and floating this idea. And they said, yeah, there are a million things out there about how to get hired as a data scientist, but very few about how to actually hire data scientists if you're on the other side of the table. And I, I imagine it's a, a, a huge investment to kind of hire these people. I, I, I assume that they don't come cheap. And, uh, and also if, um, if you get it wrong, it's, it's a costly wrong, you know? Yeah, so it's great that you've got a book. They, they always say that. What's that old saying? Uh, everybody's got a book in them, right? So you're kind of trying to get yours out there. Actually, let's take a step back then. So in terms of data science, um, this kind of word gets banded around a lot. Would you be okay to kind of uh, introduce what, what data science really is, give a, give a clear definition as to that? Well, I, I'll do my best. You know, I, it's one of those things where you might ask 10 
people what data science is and get 12 answers. <laughs> uh, there's still a lot of hype, but also uncertainty about, about what it is. I, I would say in the most, most generic sense, I think data science is using data to make more informed decisions or to automate decisions. Um, so in that, there are a, a lot of aspects to, to what data science is. One, one way to look at it is that maybe it's, it's what data science and data science teams tend to do. So a common way that people have been breaking this down is to talk about uh, data analytics as something that people build, uh, you know, and that, that may be a report or a dashboard, more on the analytics side or, or data products, which that's more like the recommendation engines and the things where you see typically machine learning algorithms to, uh, to power features in a product or automate a process. So those are kind of two of the major areas and that's a very, very, very broad uh, scale. So there are lots and lots of techniques that are in there. You know, one, another way that people would say this is what data science is, is you'd look at this sort of grouping of different skills and techniques and methods that have come together. There's, there's programming and, and sort of typical computer science, there's statistics, and then sort of applying that to business and organizational decisions that need to be made. Yeah. And uh, so th those are probably the main ways that, that I would describe it. It, it, uh, yes, that's good. That's good. I, I've got a question around that actually. So from a data analytics perspective, because obviously when you've got lots of data, you want to be able to visualize it and present it in a particular way. I assume that's what the data analyst is kind of looking at. So one, one question is, I, I would say about what is data science that goes along with it is why is data science happening now? versus 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think the answer is that people have been doing most of this stuff for a very long time, but in the last 10 years or so, there's been this confluence of events. You've got sort of the whole phenomenon of big data. Uh, there are just, just way more data. There are, there's been an exponential growth in the number of internet users. You know, there, there were maybe a billion people 20 years ago, and now there's something like four or five billion people that have some access online. Of course, that has to do with the mobile phone revolution, smartphones, all the stuff coming in. Uh, so there's just way more data. Now, at the same time, storing and processing the data has gotten exponentially cheaper. Yes. And, uh, and then, so those are two of the big, big drivers. But then on top of that, also, people have really started paying more attention to this. So you've got a lot of open source software that's come out to handle these kind of things. And, you know, it's just this process that builds on top of each other. So suddenly, you know, this is not only recognized as potentially valuable, but also feasible to do. Right. And so what kind of had emerged is you had data science, data analysts, I'm sorry, for, for a very long time, you know, business intelligence, uh, all these things, people that are doing SQL queries and Excel spreadsheets. Uh, this has been done since, um, you know, it, it, eternity early, uh, as far as the computer uh, computer world is concerned, and and even before that, obviously. But uh, you know, suddenly when you have lots of more data and lot more varying sources of data, then you had these kind of new new problems to tackle, 
And so people needed a different skill sets, uh, whether that's, you know, programming. If, if I asked you to, to go to a website and scrape data, you know, if, if you had only touched Excel, you know, that might be a totally new thing that you, that you'd never done before, uh, or just having very, very large sets of data where you might need to apply different kinds of techniques, such as more sophisticated statistical analysis or machine learning. And, uh, so what, what kind of ended up happening is you, you had people coming in from different areas, science and, uh, uh, statistics and, and, uh, a number of other areas that weren't typically or traditionally doing say business analytics. Yeah. And, you know, this all kind of came together and, and, and also there were a few algorithmic breakthroughs, especially things like deep learning, which could suddenly do image recognition, uh, or image identification much, much better than in the past. Uh, also based on there being a lot more data and a lot more computing power and, and all these trends coming together and, and suddenly that just unlocked or opened the floodgates, so to speak. And, and you had this, this new thing coming out. So, so in that sense, you know, the, what, what, what people often ask me is what would, uh, one question that people often ask me is the difference between a data analyst and a data scientist. And I would say to me, the main difference there is that the data scientists are almost always also programmers. Uh -huh. So they, they use languages like Python or R uh, beyond maybe being good at say Excel and, and SQL to do database queries and things. And that's important because if someone hands you a file with data in it and it's a format that, you know, Excel doesn't recognize or whatever, the, the the data scientists typically can say, okay, well, I'm going to write a parser to pull this data out and manipulate it in, in such a way that I can handle, or if they need to orchestrate uh, a lot more computing resources to handle the data that's there, those are the kind of skills that the data scientists would have. But, but they also would build on the traditional skills of visualizing data and aggregating data and looking, looking for answers. Yeah. In terms of that big data, I mean, is there just too much data anyway? I, I, I mean, is there, is there so much that, you know, we actually kind of don't know what to do with it anymore? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's, that's kind of an interesting question because 10 years ago, there was so much talk about big data. And on the other hand, you don't really hear people talk about it in quite the same way now. Uh, so in my mind, I think, you know, maybe it's just some of the mystery has been removed. Right. Uh, or we've just gotten so much better at dealing with these massive volumes of data. Uh, I, I, th I would assume that in the last 10 years, the exponential growth of data has continued unabated. So in some ways you would think, you know, we should be even more overwhelmed if only with the volume of data uh, that, that should potentially be causing us a lot of problems. But my guess is that there's just been so much more attention paid or, or uh, effort made towards handling this data and and doing things with it that uh, you know we're we're getting a lot better. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we, typical businesses are not in a position where they actually have too much data. Uh, one one of the jokes that you would hear within the data science community is uh, that you know you can just pay me ten thousand dollars to tell you that no, you do not have big data. <laughs> but uh you know it, it, the the and, and the reality is for the most part people typically don't have big data or they 
the valuable part of their data is actually much smaller than than they were maybe expecting. Right. Uh, on the other very extreme end is you would see things like uh, particle physicists who are doing these experiments uh, at at CERN looking for the Higgs boson, these kind of things. And they would have to reject 99% of the data that they are collecting because they just have so much data coming in that they have to make these split millisecond decisions of which data is useful and which isn't. And so that, that's, that's sort of maybe some extreme future that maybe we'll run into, but, uh, but uh, maybe, maybe it'll become so, you know, the, the, uh, the pace of the, the, the growth of storage or d d decrease in costs and things will keep pace with uh, the uh, growth of data and we won't be in those situations. So, so this kind of brings me on to the, uh, the kind of tools that you use to, to actually kind of manage uh, and, and deal with this kind of data. And in that, we're going to throw in the AI ML kind of approach. So I think on, on the purely handling data side, you know, there's the whole field of data engineering, which uh, is something that is very closely related to the data science. I mean, these, are, these all kind of grew up together. Uh, in some ways, data engineering is an evolution of uh, what's been going on, like all of these things. Uh, you know, maybe traditionally had your database administrator who's handling a lot of stuff. Uh, now you, you're in the cloud and you're, you're also, when you have a lot more data, you're worried about distributed processing of, of, of these huge amounts of data with tools like Spark. And uh, you know, 10 years ago, everyone was all about Hadoop. Um, and, and, and you're starting to see things like that. But, but then as far as analyzing the data, you know, there are statistical tools people are using um, and then of course, machine learning and, and, and as you mentioned, AI. So I, I think one of the big things that has changed and helped so much is there's been a lot of work on the, on the tools available, uh, it, it, you know, even at the basic programming language level. So two, two big changes have happened in, in my view. One is that Python kind of uh, was able to morph into the language of data science for a lot of people. Uh, previously, it was used for scripting and then for for web programming. And then about 10 years ago, uh, people started using it uh, for data stuff. Actually, before that, there was a lot of numerical stuff that was going on. People were using it as an alternative to MATLAB, which is for numerical programming. Uh, but But then especially with the emergence of Pandas, which is a library that people use to manipulate data that came out of the finance world. Yes. Uh, and then also Scikit-Learn, which is a machine learning library that, that those came about around the same time. And so suddenly there was a tool with a very easy to use programming language that, that a number of people knew and that could be used to do a lot of this data science stuff. Uh, next to that, you've got R, which is, came out of the statistics world uh, it was actually an open source replacement for an older tool called S. Uh, I'm not an R user, so I might get some of that history wrong. Yeah, right. But, uh, you know, it, it was developing also in parallel with a lot of the statistics stuff. And, and basically, it made lots of very powerful techniques available for free to anyone who is willing to learn them. Yeah. And so the, these techniques and, and also one of the main tools people use now are... are notebooks, notebook interfaces. So one of the things you'll hear about a lot are, are these notebook tools, uh, probably stemming back to things like Mathematica. Right. familiar with that. And uh, they, they use what's called a notebook interface. And basically what, what that is, is you would write 
in some code to do something and then uh, you hit enter so it's interactive and you get the result and then you go to in the next cell which is basically just the next little part enter more commands in and it's got your your previous results in 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 memory so that it still knows what's going on and you can also do visualizations and everything and it's like like a notebook so you can keep track of everything i think wow. in the in the sort of the scientific world that was considered like a scientific notebook where you would write down your little that's right your notes method. and experiments yeah. and everything and, and and keep that together and, and basically what that's allowed people to do is quickly explore data and experiment and look at the results and try out visualizations uh, before you would move that over to a report or a dashboard or or some sort of algorithm that you're going to deploy yeah so th those are those are tools that uh data scientists and machine learning people use every day uh that have been incredibly helpful and have gotten a lot of uh, attention as far as the development side yeah yeah, so this this quite this sounds like there's quite a lot of there's been a democratization of uh, the tools uh, to yeah. be able to kind of process this. It's kind of created a yeah. It, um, I, I do, and I think that's actually an overlooked aspect. I mean, to me, there's something very interesting going on, which was you had people like Google uh, back in I don't know when it was 2005 that that time period where where they started putting out some papers about how do we handle these giant amounts of data that we deal with? Because they're scraping the web. Uh, you know, so obviously a lot of data there, billions of websites now. Uh, and then other people took those and implemented them. Famously Hadoop, uh, I, as far as I uh, know, it, it came out of Yahoo and right. was released as open source software. And then people started building on that. And so a lot of this stuff followed the open source tradition. So they're building not only tools that people could use but also spreading the knowledge about how to do this yeah. and if you look at the top labs coming out with the fanciest ai algorithms nowadays mostly people are publishing those in the open and uh, just moving that the field along so fast because they're doing that i would yeah. say it's different to some other related fields such as maybe operations research uh, which uh, operations research you know, they look at things like, how do we handle the logistics? You know, I need to route something, a vehicle from here to here, or, or how do I schedule uh, things to happen such they happen in an efficient way? And the one of the big differences is that most of the tools for the sort of numerical optimization they use for operations research are mostly proprietary. And so in some ways, I think that that's probably held them back relative to a lot of the data science stuff because it's been done so openly and, and really benefited everybody because of that. It's, it's, quite, it's quite strange. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of money and investment that goes into kind of creating uh, these uh, research papers and, uh, and tools, but yet they're made available, which is, I think is great. It's, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, my impression is that uh, if you were a top researcher who can demand an incredibly high salary at this point, uh, you know, if, if, if someone wants to hire you and they don't allow you to publish, then, you know, you can say, look, I can go to Google or I can go to Facebook or Microsoft and they'll all allow me to publish. You know, why yeah. are you not letting me publish? And so it's like they, they have so much power and there's so much demand for them that, that right. uh, has enabled them. Because, and once, once it has become sort of a, a, a standard, then it's hard to deny that, you know, even I think Apple maybe 
begrudgingly started releasing some of the stuff they were doing because they're kind of uh, famously secret secretive mm. about a lot of the things they do yeah yeah so kind of uh, circling back towards um, your book and uh, kind of hiring the right people to work in this area so so what what is the what ticks all the boxes in terms of hiring the right people well that's a great question that that really i think is the crux of the book um which is called hiring data scientists and machine learning engineers and i guess i can put a plug in now it's it's uh being published by lean pub and you can go to the landing page today at leanpub.com l-e-a-n-p-u-b slash ds hiring which is one word all lowercase we'll put that stuff at the bottom of the page as well so people can get hold of it so i i I think the the key is really identifying what you're trying to do uh you know as i mentioned before there's a lot of uh it there's there's a lot of confusion about what data science is and 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 what it can do uh so a lot of it has to do with identifying your specific business problem, what tasks actually need to be done and sort of what skills are needed to do those tasks. Yeah. And, and that, that really leads to kind of breaking down which roles you need. So on the one hand, you know, there are generalist data scientists, which is a lot of my career experience has been either working as a generalist data scientist or uh, hiring generalist data scientists just the nature of, of the uh, businesses that I've been uh, a part of and helped. And, and those are people that kind of do end-to-end uh, uh, analyzing data, modeling data, deploying solutions. Uh, and and some people would call those sort of the, the unicorns because they have all these skills. Yeah. Which is very difficult to find people who are good at that. Uh, and they are not cheap, but hopefully worth, worth the money that you have to pay them. Um, and but they're but they're not they're not right for every situation you know the more mature the 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 organization you're in and the more focused the problem is the more specific and well understood you're more likely to to need a more diverse team of specialists so you might need the data engineers who are going to handle uh the the ingress and transformation and cleaning of the data and uh productionizing these data pipelines and you, you need uh maybe data analysts to, to come in and, and look at the data and build the kind of analysis uh, and reports and dashboards that you might be putting in to, to have running all the time. And, or uh, data scientists who are doing machine learning, sometimes people that you would call machine learning engineers are doing building the machine learning models or whatever, and, and then deploying that. And then you, you may have people who are dedicated to what they would call ML ops, which is machine learning operations as sort of DevOps, if you've heard this term, uh, married with full, specifically aimed at machine learning. And so, you know, what, what, what we're seeing is this diversification of roles in uh, more mature organizations. And we're starting to see a lot of tools that are more specific to these things like, oh, you need to monitor experiments that you're running with machine learning well, yeah. there are several tools or services now that exist to help you keep track of all the experiments and understand uh, which versions of your models are the best or for example monitoring productionized systems to understand the health of the system yeah and this is something that for many organizations is very far down the road because they're still at the beginning of the journey but all, all these things affect 
who it is you need to hire. And uh, which, which, which is difficult. And, and there are several reasons why that's difficult. I mean, you know, let's say that you, you have identified who you need, what kind of data scientist or machine learning engineer, or maybe someone else that you need to hire. Uh, one of the biggest issues that, that companies run into is simply the volume of applicants that they'll get. And, you know, this, this is a, a result of, of a lot of the hype around this field in the first place. You know, people know that it's very exciting and, uh, and well-paying for the yeah. most part compared to a lot of other, other jobs. And so you've, you've seen this flood of people switching into data science or, uh, you know, students who are studying data science now uh, at a lot of places, people could get their first degree could be in data science. And uh, uh, so that means that if, especially if you're hiring for more junior roles, you know, you, you could be overwhelmed with applicants. At, at my last company that I, that I was working in, you know, we, we would get more than 500 applicants for a single role, uh, which would be much higher than the number of say, of applicants they would get for say, like a role like software engineering. And so the, the over on the software engineering side of the company, they, they just had a fundamentally different problem in their hiring process because the volume of applicants was just so different. Right. And so at that point, you need to really try to um, automate aspects of, of the hiring process. Or I, I, you could look at it like just putting more resources, resources towards that hiring process, whether it's sorting through resumes uh, or, or whatever. Uh, and part of the underlying question then is, is how do you sort out who knows what they're doing versus who doesn't? Yes. Of this is, this is, a, this is a big question because when you, when you've got so many people coming into the field, you know, it's not easy to tell. And, and on top of that, uh, it's still a very broad, vague field. So it's, it's hard to, uh, and it's, and it's new. So yeah. all of these things happening, make it make it difficult. If this is the first data scientist you've ever hired, you may have no idea how to assess their abilities and skills. Yeah. Uh, but even if this is the 20th data scientist you've hired, it, it may be hard just to sort through that large volume of candidates. So what, what, what I've done at, at, uh, the last company I was at where I, I was there for a few years and hired, uh, probably something like a dozen data scientists in that time on onto my team and, and adjacent teams. And the process we used was uh, trying to automate the initial skills assessment. That was probably the key to sort of narrowing the funnel of applicants, you know, lots and lots of people in the beginning and, and then going from there and, and then uh, doing a, maybe a more traditional process after that, where where it's more about talking to people and and doing uh, doing more traditional tech interviews. Uh, so in, in that sense, we start by looking at the the basic skills that that people need for data science, which is like data manipulation and, and basic analysis, uh, a, a minimum level of programming ability and minimum knowledge of machine learning, depending on it, if that's part of the role, uh, and, and, and kind of go for there from there. But I would say that 
it's very much a question of how do you optimize your hiring process related to the resources you have and the volume you expect and, and all these constraints, the, t the time that's available. And uh, it, it's, it's certainly not an easy problem to handle and, and requires a bit of trial and error. Is it, is it worth um, just kind of uh, thinking, you know, obviously somebody like yourself who's kind of quite proficient in hiring these kind of people, is it worth bringing an expert in to actually help that hiring process? So I, I think it definitely can be, especially for the situation where you've never done this before, um, or if you're trying to switch your process, you know, ha make a big change in your process. And uh, I, I think that the part of it is understanding what the difference is. If, if you're, if you're, Hiring these people for the first time, it's it's really understanding the difference in the process between hiring, say, software engineers or data analysts, maybe that you business intelligence analysts that you've traditionally had versus versus hiring data scientists and and just understanding what the differences are. Mm. And you know, the first person who walks in and says that they know how to do the latest deep learning AI stuff, that may seem very impressive if if you really haven't dealt with it firsthand, but but you may not realize that, oh, this is, it, they may not actually know what they're talking about, but also this may be just the wrong skill set than what you're looking for. I, I can see the, uh, the minefield because it's, it's such a new area and there's a lot of new terminology and also the definition of the terms are a little bit kind of uh, out there. I, I, I kind of relate it back to the kind of DevOps, you know, um, it was very difficult to, you know, you got different definitions of what that was. And uh, yes. I guess on, on that note, I'll mention that the titles, it can be very confusing. Yeah. So uh, at, at some companies, when they say data scientist, they mean a specific thing. You, usually there are one at, that you commonly see at, at bigger companies. Uh, I think Facebook was probably really the first company to go down this path, but there have been a number of tech companies that have followed. And when they say data scientist, they mean more like a data analyst. Oh. Uh, oftentimes it's an analyst who works specifically with products. Uh, to understand, you know, what the what the users of the product are doing, how new features on the product uh, affect the users and and product usage, uh, but but not necessarily what other people would call data scientists who might be broader in their scope and yeah. especially using much more uh, machine learning and some of these techniques to build algorithms, which may be a little bit different. It, it's and of course it's not clear cut. It's never clear cut. Yeah, but. Uh, the, what what you have seen is that there will be uh, misunderstanding on the part of the company hiring and or on the part of the applicants. So, yeah, you know, you might especially have students or whatever who who have taken courses or done a boot camp or something, and you know they did all this machine learning, and then they go and apply, and the entire interview is about SQL queries and and stuff that they haven't maybe haven't done much, and and or even worse, they, they get into the job and, and realize that the data science that the people are doing here is so much different than what they expected, yeah. what they knew as data science. And, and, and then on the other hand, you, you've got new roles like machine learning engineer, which has uh, emerged in the last few years, which uh, I, I would say is still all, also unclear, you know, and, and is the machine learning engineer someone who builds machine learning models or are they someone who maybe strictly works on deploying machine learning models? 
and, and that also varies from uh, company to company. It's a minefield. Uh, it, it truly is, isn't it? Um, so kind of circling back now towards uh, back to data science um, in terms of its life cycle, as you're saying, you know, people have been dealing with data for a while now. Um, uh, where, where are we currently with the, with the title of data science? So uh, I, I think that, you know, we're seeing an evolution. Things are changing. Um, the, the term that, that a lot of people have been using to describe this phenomenon lately is that we are maybe still in or leaving the webmaster era. And by that, uh, what, what, what that means is that it's, that it's calling back to the 90s or early 2000s where the webmaster was the single person who handled all aspects of a, a website yeah. or web even or web page even you know <laughs> and uh, basically that that was someone who uh they someone who did it end to end they would create content uh, you know writing what's going to be on the website create graphics and handle graphics they would deploy it they would manage it they would they would be the person at the bottom of the site that said email the webmaster yes. webmaster at uh, your company.org or whatever and uh uh you know we're seeing kind of the same thing in data science which is that it started off sort of with the uh generalist jack of all trades full stack data scientist and then you know it's evolving into these more specific roles uh i i think that we'll see this happen more. And, and I guess there, there's the logical question out of that is, well, nobody's called a webmaster anymore. Will, will anyone be called a data scientist yes. you know, 10 years from now? <laughs> and I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the specific answer. I, I think for now, uh, probably like with the webmaster type thing is that in organizations that are early in their journey, they do need generalist data scientists typically to kick things off. They don't necessarily know what problems they should be addressing. They don't necessarily know what roles they really need. So bringing in people that are pretty good at a lot of things is usually the good start. Whereas in a much more mature organization, you know, they're, they're going to have uh, people with these specific roles and maybe uh, like at a place like your Facebooks or whatever, when they use the term data scientists, they actually mean something much more narrow. Mm. Um, so, so that's, it's, it's not quite clear what's going to happen, but, um, I, I don't know. I, I had a former colleague who used to, he used to like to say that he thought data science, there would be no data scientists. It would just be that people, uh, would learn data science skills. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I fully agree with this, but he liked to say that, uh, you know, how many companies have an Excel department? Yeah. Like, no, there, there's, there's not a spreadsheet or Excel department. It's just people picked up Excel to, to help do their jobs and, and, and spreadsheets. Uh, I guess I would counter that by saying, well, there are still uh, statisticians and things that uh, if you go to a university, for example, and you're doing research, you can get a consulting statistician to help you do the statistics. And uh, may, maybe the argument would be that statistics is harder than Excel, but I, I don't know the answer there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Okay, so so uh, in terms of um, the the hype around data science and and what it can offer, where where are we in that kind of cycle? Uh, so I I think 
probably, you know, when you look at the, uh, the hype cycle or hype curve or whatever, and I think probably a, a, in general and in the tech and industries overall, we're probably somewhere into the trough of disillusionment, <laughs> meaning people have got past a lot of the initial hype. But I, I guess I would say that that also depends on what industry you're in. You know, yeah. if you're Google or, or someone who's a sort of core internet tech company, you've been doing this for a while and you've started to nail down the use cases and, uh, you know, may, maybe I guess if you were Google, you, you were doing this before there was the hype cycle. Yes. You know, you, yeah. so you, you kind of were able to plow through that without having to deal with the hype as much. But if you're in another industry, um, let's say some of the traditional sort of older industries that are, that are more conservative and slower to adopt new technologies, you know, you may still be very much on the upward part of the uh, hype cycle and, and uh, you know, this is going to change everything and it's going to make us, uh, it's going to digitally transform us. And uh, you know, what, whatever it is where, where, where this is the greatest thing ever, and uh, of course, I'm in data science, so I obviously do think this is uh, a great thing. Maybe not the greatest thing ever, but but very good. So I, I think what we're we're starting to see is there there have been a lot of failures. You know, people people feel pressure. You know, at the corporate level, uh, whether that's legitimate pressure or you know they are reading in business publications where they feel like their competitors are doing this if you you know read press releases which is probably a bad thing to do to assess what your competitors are doing you feel like everyone's doing this and uh, you know we're going to fall behind if we're not doing this but you know what those press releases don't tell you is is how well this is actually working out and oftentimes it's not and and i i would say that that this is certainly the only thing that I've ever been involved with where a lot of the job as a consultant or or an, or a, a full-time employee is telling stakeholders that no this is the wrong technique right I know you want to use this technique because it sounds good but it may not be the right technique for what you want to do right and I think that's that's really is because of all, all the hype there so I, I think we're we're on the one hand we're still seeing that but on the other hand you know you're starting to see uh, a lot more maturity coming into this and you're, you're starting to see people care about how do we uh, manage uh, a more mature product project product from a sort of a holistic life cycle way of uh, you know yes we, we did a proof of concept and it seems to work and we put it in production but you know what happens over the longer term when the underlying data starts to shift and are our models do they, do they still make sense? And, and how do we detect whether the models have started to uh, lose performance? And, and thinking about this in a, in a more engineered, robust, longer term sense. And, and so you're starting to see a lot of that. You're seeing the tools emerge to do that in services. And so, you know, to me, that's really a sign that, you know, people have started to find where this can work, where the real value is. And, uh, you know, the to me, the, then the question is, how do we, what, what lessons can we really learn from that and bring it to other projects or to other industries that, that haven't had that time to sort of uh, learn 
on their own. So, so uh, I mean, this kind of brings me on to uh, a subject that back from my kind of geeky days when I was a computer pro, we used to use patterns. Are there patterns emerging in terms of uh, data science and ways in which you can go about it? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think you, you probably, well, look, let's put it this way. In computer science and in programming, there, there are often these patterns which uh, you know, this, you'd hear about like this object-oriented patterns and things like that. And, and those are sort of standard ways to do things. I think the patterns that maybe you see in, in data science and machine learning and AI if you want, is, is more like the patterns of failures. So it's a little bit more on the, the, uh, the opposite side of that. But, you know, what, what were the commonalities and things that didn't work? And uh, oftentimes it's jumping the gun you know, going in too early, uh, you know, not sort of giving the proof of concept, maybe the the time to really prove itself out. Yeah. Uh, before you know, j kind of you know, pushing even harder. Uh, but but it's a little le less clear. I, I think that people are still figuring out the best workflows for some of these things. You know, there there is a temptation to say use an agile methodology, uh, but. My, my experience is that you probably can't just wholesale adopt that. You know, yeah. it's, you need to uh, adapt things. And, and one of the big reasons is because there is a lot of uncertainty in a lot of these projects. And what that means is, you know, if I said, hey, I need a, a website that does X, Y, and Z, you, you might come back and say, okay, what resources do we need? What's our timeline? What's our budget? You know, who do we, what, who do we need to do this sort of specific technologies? And, and then it's a matter of execution. Yeah. You know, that, that's probably how you would think about it because, you know, unless you're trying to do something that has absolutely never been done before, it, it's, it's clear that this can be done. It's just, it's mostly a matter of time and costs and, you know, what, what is it going to take? On the other hand, with a lot of the data science stuff, there are just fundamental uncertainties about, do we have the data that could allow us to uh, make these decisions or to automate this process? And and starting out, it just may not be clear. Uh, it, I mean, it, I guess I would say it's almost always unclear. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can say, no, you don't have any data, that's clear. But then this question of, do, it, does the data you have, it, is, is it, does it, Will it allow you to do this? Do you have enough data? And those are things that you really have to learn as you do it. Yeah. Uh, part of the difficulty is that some of these things only work once you have uh, sort once you're sort of at scale with the data. So it maybe you need so much data before you know if this will work. That means that it's much harder to start super small. Yeah. And say like, oh, you know, we'll just we'll just start real small and just try out something. You know, it's, it's very different than let's make a tiny, tiny app or a tiny website or, or a little spreadsheet that can pretend. Uh, so th those are fundamental difficulties. And, and in that respect, it's a lot more like science that you're going in and you just don't know if the experiments are going to work out or not. Yes, it's very open-ended. So, I mean, this kind of uh, points to an area I'm kind of interested in is risk and de-risking, mitigating risk. So um, um, going into a data project, data science project, uh, you don't know what you're going to get out of it because that's the whole, you know, you're looking, you've got all this data, what can we get out of this? You know, it's, um, so you've not really got any outcomes initially, have you? you you're not, 
knowing what you're going to get. Well, I, I, I think that that is the case. And I, I think that one of, so maybe this is a pattern that is, uh, that, uh, is what you're talking about, which is kind of flipping the problem on the head. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you may want to build a machine learning algorithm that, uh, predicts if, um, this song you came up with is going to be a hit record. You know, is this, is this going to be <laughs> the hit podcast intro song or something? And so flipping it on its head would be, uh, instead of trying to build this incredible algorithm, it would be a little bit of sort of fake it till you make it. And by that, what I mean is instead of thinking about it as I want to build an algorithm that does this, think about it more of, I want to build a product that does this what's the minimum way that I can do that. And then I want to see if I can automate that. Right. So in the beginning, you know, you, you might have some process that is a series of steps. And then the question might be, can you automate each of those steps? And then maybe ultimately, can you automate it completely end to end? Uh, but in the meantime, can you do some either very basic things, write some rules or have humans intervene at each of those steps to make it happen. Right. And that, that I think that is a reasonable pattern because oftentimes in the beginning, you're also collecting data as you go. So it's the kind of thing where in, in that case, there's still a risk that it won't work out if what you need is a fully automated process. Uh, but also there is, there may be an upfront sort of capital investment that you need if, if you're especially having humans kind of be the, the, uh, the, uh, the people behind the curtain until you're there. Um, but that, that's potentially less risky of an outcome than if you just start with a blank slate and say, I'm just going to take a bunch of data and try to build an end to end system and it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this, um, I mean, there's so many areas, uh, around this kind of data science where, yeah, I, I guess I guess the question that comes out of that is is that you know where have you seen this really work well, and where have you seen it kind of fail, and why? Why did it fail? So I I think you know we we see things like search and ad placement. You know I I, I would say in some ways those are sort of the uh, less hyped killer applications of this kind of technology. That's the thing that like Google has been doing. Forever, they just you know they were just doing it so early that it wasn't even really talked about in this way. Yeah. Um, and then I think the so there are maybe some low hanging fruit, so to speak, which is which is uh, very valuable and successful, which is mostly about just getting the data, putting it together, and looking at it. Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't have to like you know build some incredible infrastructure to get to that point, but just having visibility and into data uh, in a way that you maybe didn't have in the past has, has been super valuable for a lot of people. Um, I, I, I think on the other hand, what you see is a lot of the successful things tend to be really when they play to the strengths of some of these algorithms. So the things that have emerged as incredibly much stronger than they have in the past are things like computer vision algorithms to detect things and classify things. Um, also with, with audio, the, 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 the quality of uh, 
transcribing voice to to text now is so much better than it used to be and uh it's not strictly just from these techniques but but the most recent stuff is is using these techniques using neural networks and uh you know people have been able to do that with much higher accuracy and much faster yeah. than they used to be able to do it uh and then you know we're starting to get some other text stuff that's really coming out um and then also i mean i do think I think there's a lot of progress in recommendation systems. Uh, people like to make fun of recommendation systems. It's the the sort of thing of, uh, let's say, Amazon, where it's like, I, I bought a toilet, and now Amazon thinks I should buy five more toilets. You know, and and uh, it's, uh, I, I would say probably that's largely failure of edge cases because, and, you know, it's like, there's something like a toilet, you're probably not going to buy many of those. But, you know, if you're buying, uh, let's say if you're listening to music, probably a lot of the music, let's say Spotify or one of these services uh, have been able to do a better job because they've got an incredible amount of data. And, uh, you know, there are similarities in these things. And it's not like you want to listen to one song and then never listen to another one for 15 years, like you might with your toilet purchase. <laughs> and uh, so, so, you know, there, there are, I think recommendations when it's at scale seems to do pretty well. Um, but there's a lot of times when, you know, you're, you're doing things where there may just not be the data there. Uh, at my last company that I was at, we were doing a lot of stuff with industrial companies. And one of the most commonly desired things in the industrial world is to be able to predict when your equipment is going to fail before it actually fails. Yes, that's right. Um, I think that is probably not likely to succeed in most cases. And the reason for that, especially in these industrial settings is that um, there's sort of a paradox. If you had enough failures to provide a good data set on failures, you probably just need new equipment. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, so the, the data scientists might love it if your equipment is that bad, but you probably won't. <laughs> you know, you, there, there are other solutions that you're going to be in, you know, going after if, if your equipment is that bad. And then also you, you have, what you tend to get is, is time series data coming out of sensors. So we're looking at the RPM of a motor or the pressure or the temperature. And in a lot of ways, those are relatively low signal about what's going on. There's not a ton of information that that's that you can get out of that. You know, you think about it versus uh, video of, uh, well, let's say a human. What's their face looking like right now? And you know, we have to to us, it's a very very high signal type of piece of data. Yeah. Uh, and so I I, I think that. The industrial world, they've been in a position where this has been incredibly hyped up, but at the same time, it's a very hard problem with the amounts of data they have, uh, where each system is relatively different, you know, especially if you, like the more expensive and exotic the piece of equipment, the probably the less amount of data there is. Right. If you wanted to take uh, a cell phone and say, I want to be able to detect when someone's walking, because they have a gyroscope on there, you know, that's something you can probably do because there are billions of cell phones and whatever you can get enough data there. But if, if, if you're looking at a, uh, you know, $40 million piece of equipment of which there are only a dozen of them, 
around and they operate in different conditions, then you know, it makes your job much, much, much harder to do kind of these data-driven solutions. That's right. Because, I mean, this kind of brings me on to an area which I've been involved in in the past, not as a data scientist, but um, just as uh, analyzing data, uh, is the quality of the data. How, how, as a data scientist, obviously, before you even start doing, you know, uh, your stuff, you want to make sure that you're not kind of building on rubbish, really, you know? Right, right. Well, (laughs) uh, there is the saying in in the... uh, computing world I, I suppose of garbage in garbage out yes yeah and uh, which applies to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, kinds of systems but uh, yeah it, it's it's a big consideration and I, I think for data scientists one of the common ones is just looking at the data and realizing that the data is just not what people thought the data was you know it either doesn't have the information or uh, it's just not giving you what you expected or not the right granularity. You yeah. know, they, someone might say, oh, we have years of this data and then you go and look and they have one number per year. And you know, you might be worried about some <laughs> daily level event, right? And it, it, you see that kind of thing. And, uh, or and th- those scenarios are hard because uh, you know, they might have years and years of data, but really they need to collect new data to get what they actually need from, and right. so, you know, it's those are the scenarios where the logical thing would be to say, come back in five years and we'll look at yes. this problem again. And which is, of course, incredibly frustrating if, if you have a business problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. I guess also the way in which the data has been collected for websites and stuff like that is pretty straightforward. But when there's kind of human interactivity by asking the question, yep. you're kind of affecting the data that's going to come out of that, you know? Yeah, which... yeah. And, uh, there's there's a minefield there also about you know if you're collecting personally identifiable identifiable data uh, or uh, anything like this you know you come up against legal and uh, ethical ethical considerations um, different from say these uh, you know looking at pumps and and uh, motors and things that that I was previously looking at is, is you've got a whole world of you know worrying about uh, violating people's privacy or or uh, worrying about the bias of of the algorithms that you're running and how that can adversely affect uh people either you know either just affecting anybody or uh i mean there are many problems there one that gets a lot of uh press at the moment is is maybe how uh you know these algorithms might be amplifying bias societal bias but you can also think of it like if the algorithm doesn't go right, you know, is it causing a problem? You know, uh, there are a lot of famous examples. Uh, I, I, I mean, maybe there's something like those, uh, the Boeing 737 Max uh, crashes that had, you know, where there's a horrible loss of life and it's due to the software systems that they had enabled that didn't have, I, I, I'm certainly not an expert at all in this, but my understanding is the, these systems were kicking in after one sensor would give a bad reading versus, you know, some redundancy of sensors or something, or uh, famously, I think in the 80s when you had a radiation therapy machine that ran into a software condition and was uh, giving people lethal doses of, of radiation. So, you know, th- there's, there's all kinds of uh, considerations. More mundane would be uh, providing an analysis to uh, to the leadership and a company at whatever level it is or management and, and 
they latch onto the analysis to make decisions like we're gonna we're gonna fire these low performers or something like that and and uh, this is these are, I, I have seen this uh, this this case um, firsthand where uh, the suddenly you as the data analyst realize that oh you need to take a step back because this data is not straightforward how we got to these numbers is not straightforward and if you make a decision like firing someone based on this data that may not be a legitimate decision because there there's a lot of uh, dirty parts of the data or uh, you know if if you're looking at let's say rules violations uh, per uh, let's say you're looking at rules violations and uh, you know someone on the one hand someone could have 500 violations but if you don't have uh, a better KPI that's like let's say rules violations per days worked or something it's like well this person has worked for 25 years yeah and so if you actually you know divide that through they are below average yeah uh, and then on the other hand if you uh, if you do something like that and let's say rules violations I'm just making it up, but let's say per per mile or kilometer driven, and you know this person they've got you know one violation or something per per kilometer, and the average is you know point one or something. But what you didn't check was that this person has driven one kilometer because it's their first day or something right. like that, right? Yes. And, and you know not understanding that ha what what the data really really means, and, and yeah. so the uh, uh, it's that obligation falls down to those analysts to to communicate very well about what's going on and you know the the managers and leaders they're typically smart enough to understand this uh you know you just but it is uh they have to be receptive and and you as the person who's reading these uh, analysis you know you need to be very uh forthright and uh so, well, and obviously, as all communication within organizations, you sometimes have to be diplomatic about it. But yes, yeah, uh, it, it, it's one of the difficult things that people have to do, and it, it is a, a potential ethical danger or whatever. Yes. So I'd like to kind of talk about actually leading data scientists because there's obviously having data scientists and hiring the right ones, but then getting the best out of them. Have you got any kind of tips on that? Uh, I think you know I, one of the questions that. Uh, comes up is you know what what are the attributes of the data scientist and for me the number one attribute is that people uh, need to be very curious uh, learners and but I think as a leader you know uh, you, you need to help that along oftentimes uh, typically the people that you find that are good at this stuff are are natural learners they want to you know very curious they want to look at that data but they also want to learn all the new techniques you know they, they want to do this stuff uh and and tend to enjoy a level of autonomy that's that's uh, pretty high uh so as a leader i think that it's really important that you help people you know sort of realize this curiosity and desire to learn to kind of push them along and, and kind of help them be fulfilled uh, in in a market where experienced people are the hard ones to find and they're in very high demand, I mean, you know, it it, it probably behooves you to to really help there because uh, you know if someone it, it, in I don't know about today, which we're we're here talking in November of 2020, but in the last few years, definitely. Uh, 
you know, it, it, there's uh, a good chance that you could lose somebody because there are so many opportunities, high paying opportunities for the, for these people. So, you know, yeah. you, you want to provide the environment. Uh, personally, I want to be in an environment that's uh, full of very smart people, uh, nice people, uh, you know, working on interesting problems, uh, relatively low bureaucracy. I, I think one of the problems that data scientists in particular run into, I, I'm sure software engineers might argue the same thing, but uh, since we're using a lot of new tools and technologies, that means that we often have to deploy, uh, install or adopt things that, that the organization hasn't used before. Right. So if you have a very slow moving or bureaucratic sort of IT oh, yes. process, that, that can be incredibly frustrating for data scientists. Um, and you know, and, and if you, if you are in an organization that hasn't used a lot of open source before, and almost all of these data science tools are open source. And it, you know, if you have very locked down equipment, those are, it's the same kind of problem. Yeah. So, so those are some things also with the more, uh, early career or junior people, uh, you know, helping them to progress and, uh, training them. I mean, this is good for everybody. But uh, I, I think for data scientists, uh, it's particularly good. The, the field is so rapidly changing and large that you know, nobody knows it all. And they all know that there's stuff they need to learn. Right. So uh, giving them the mentorship, uh, let, let's say, I, I think one of the most popular things that people that I have managed like to learn is to become better software engineers. So they might be, they're data scientists, but you know, they haven't spent nearly as much time on best practices with software engineering and things like that. And I think that that uh, makes them feel, you know, I, I guess in some ways empowered also a little bit uh, like, you know, putting them on the next level right? because they have, you know, they're gaining these skills to really take things into production, to, uh, to do things in a more robust way, you know, once they've, they've got the algorithmic or, uh, statistical or analytical part down so roy um, i'm kind of really curious around you know this data scientists and and these kind of people these teams where should they sit within organizations where do they belong so i think that this is one of the things that people are really still trying to figure out people have tried a lot of different things and for the most part i think it depends on the organization so sometimes the data science would live uh, under the CTO somewhere, uh, you know, sometimes they might live under the CEO or others that are much more on the businessy side, depending on what they're doing. So if your data science is primarily related to the business side of things, then, you know, it might be more on, on the COO, CEO, business operations side of things. If it's much more product oriented, probably under the CTO, uh, may or may not be directly under the CTO, you know. Uh, another question that comes along is just how how are they organized? And people have tried a number of different uh, models for this, and I think there's no one-size-fits-all, but there's the idea of the data science team that's its own team. And sometimes uh, those teams would act as sort of like internal consultants for projects. Right. Go, go across the company uh, sometimes people will have uh, data scientists that live on 
product teams or other teams within the company. You know, they, in that sense, they are part of a specific focus area that's on the product or project, uh, if that makes sense. I guess that's what I just said, but uh, the idea there is, is versus like, oh, these this is the data science team over here and they all sit in this, uh, yeah. well, this these days virtual room that's just the data scientists and don't talk to anybody. Uh, and then, and then there are also some people who use kind of hybrid models where um, I've even heard of teams where they would have, you know, there might be a data scientist on this project and they're part of that team and that's what they do. But then, you know, every, however long they might rotate out to put a different person in there. Oh, wow. Uh, and also, you know, typically the, the, the stuff I've done, uh, like at my last company, for example, we did a mix of consulting and product work. So we had some people who their job as data scientists was basically to go work with our customers and work on their problems, help them integrate our tools, these kind of things. Uh, and then other ones who were sitting, uh, helping to develop the core uh, algorithms, core functionality of some of our products. So that, you know, that would be very much an embedded one where they're over on that team. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't, when I'm running the data science team, I'm not running their day-to-day -day work over there. Instead, I'm, I'm running all sort of, sort of the meta aspects of like making sure we're sharing our knowledge across the company uh, or with, within the data scientists, you know, they're, they're learning different things with different projects uh, making sure everyone is, is constantly learning new skills as it's going forward, uh, you know, and dealing with issues. So, you know, and how you structure that, it depends if you have some sort of matrix structure, uh, does the person in charge of the product, you know, what is their management duty related to that data scientist or does it all fall to, uh, you know, the, the person who's running the data science team, for example, it, it, it really depends. Um, and then, like I said, you know, where that team falls is, is going to be a lot about how you organize the, the company. Yeah. And, uh, so, but it, it, so there, like I said, no one size fits all answer, but it, it's one of the things that, you know, depending on what the team is, is mostly doing, uh, it probably makes sense, uh, where, where they'll go, whether it's like under the CTO or the COO, or the CEO or the CIO or, yeah. or whoever. Excellent. CDO. Sometimes you have the chief data, chief data or chief data science officer. Okay. So there's a specialization even at that C-suite level now on the, it, it, it very much can be, it just, it depends, you know, yeah. if, uh, if your company is really data centric, like that's what they do, data science centric, you know, it's going to look different than if this is a new functionality within the company to help support other aspects. Yeah. I'm kind of coming towards the end of our time together. So um, I wanted to kind of offer you a, a kind of moment to maybe present a, a key takeaway for the tech leaders out there, you know, around data science. What would be your kind of core uh, advice? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think probably my main piece of advice would be that you need to get informed and uh, and try to be as realistic as possible. So there, there is value there 
it just may be different than what you were initially expecting. Right. And so there's sort of some level of patience and open-mindedness and uh, also just the need to, uh, to learn more. I mean, like I said, there's so much that these data scientists have to learn. You can't expect that uh, a CTO or, or someone from, from the leadership is going to understand everything and, yeah. and all the ins and outs. So, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a, a need for, for learning more and also, uh, you know, listening to those people that, that have, have the experience uh, and just be on the lookout for the snake oils salespeople. <laughs> and they're out there. Yeah. Yes. I mean, as with everything, uh, they're definitely going to be a lot more in areas that have a lot of hype around them. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for joining us, Roy. Um, I look forward to speaking to you again around data. I know IT Labs have got uh, lots of kind of interesting projects around this area. So I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the, our, my colleagues will be speaking to you at some point. Um, but thank you for your time. And um, yeah. I'll put in one one last plug for my Oh, book. yeah, absolutely. I was going to say uh, that. Yes. Yeah. It's So it's called Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers. I'm hoping to uh, have the pre-release available for purchase uh, within probably early December 2020. Uh, it, it's going to cover all sorts of aspects about understanding your, your hiring needs, how to uh, determine the roles you need, how to actually uh, create your strategy for hiring and assessing skills. It's also going to have some uh, interviews with uh, data science and machine learning uh, leaders in industry to talk about what they see as good strategies and the biggest challenges they face. So a, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, you can you can find it at leanpub.com, L-E-A-N-P-U-B.com slash D-S hiring, D-S-H-I-R-I-N-G. Yeah, brilliant. That's great. And we'll put that on the uh, web page as well. So if anyone Thanks. didn't catch that, um, we'll, we'll make that available. And uh, so again, thank you very much, Roy. You're welcome. It was great talking with you. Well, Roy's passion for data and helping businesses get set up for success around it definitely comes across. This is quite a long podcast, especially considering it's not an area I spend much time in. I get all confused and mind boggled. In fact, in the past, I've described it as like a kind of kryptonite. It scuppers my superpowers. Thankfully, at IT Labs, we've got plenty of people that can cover my not strength around this area. Well, Roy did a great job of sitting me down, calming my feelings around it, and clearing up some preconceptions. Especially around the terminology, there is much confusion on this subject out there. So my key takeaways from the podcast were as follows. Firstly, if I was a chief technology officer instead of a chief talking officer, I would get an expert in to help me hire the right person to do the work at hand. It's far too easy to blow a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of sanity on trying to get this right and get the desirable outcomes. Secondly, I got to understand why data science is happening now. It's a convergence of tools, infrastructure and knowledge that has created a new monster field with some powerful, powerful things for organisations and people in general. And thirdly, and finally, my key takeaway is treading carefully and purposefully in this area. You can't just read a book at the weekend and start becoming a data scientist, or even leading it. It's a lot more complex, a lot more nuances, a lot more rabbit holes to kind of disappear down under. So really, really, really need to get the advice in and get people with experience. 
And that's just a few of the takeaways that I'd like to articulate here. Thank you again, Roy. I'm feeling a little bit better about data. For that, I thank you. And hopefully the audience got some great gems and nuggets of knowledge from your advice. And don't forget about Roy's book that he mentioned, the details of which can be found on this page. And before I go, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter. URLs for this can be found on this page. We're consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about our services at IT Labs, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders, favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. That's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a great day or evening wherever you are in the world. From all of us at IT Labs, live long and prosper until we meet again on the next podcast.